Hold it, hold it. See? Now you see. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm Checkpoint White Knuckler, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here, as always, with Scotch and Soda Hattrick, Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Hi. Look, I'm not an addict. I just daily consume a drug to modify my neurological condition in response to regular stimuli. Well, and also because otherwise it's boring. <laughs> Burrowing into the fun zone ball pit with us today is extremely valuable government witness, freelance writer Zach Handlin. Hello, Zach. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me on. And it's important to remember that you can't fight a war with your own family. <laughs> it's, it's true. And it's been tried. Today we are uh, contemplating traffic from the year 2000. But first... Ask not for whom the pod business bell tolls. It may toll for us. Jeb, any pod business to report on your end? Not at all. We've uh, had reporters at Graveside with uh, seismographers, and we do not have any stirring in the soil. So mm-hmm. the denissance is where, where we left it. No, no new denissance content. And uh, my resolution for 2022 is to continue not listening to the denissance. <laughs> However... <laughs> You should Patreonize us at patreon.com slash Quaid and Full. The uh, December 2021 bonus is a particular joy. Three and a half minutes of heartrending history. Jeb deserves combat pay for doing it. That's where you come in. Listeners, please honor his sacrifice. Again, that's patreon.com slash Quaid and Full. God bless. Are we prepared to contemplate this film, this two and a half hour film? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did take a lot of notes. I took a lot of notes. <laughs> I actually didn't take that many notes, but let me uh, jump into a plot summary in case not everybody remembers what we're dealing with here. Inspired by a 1989 BBC serial of the same name, different spelling, Steven Soderbergh's Traffic, released in 2000, took home Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, and Editing Oscar trophies as well as Best Supporting Actor for Benicio Del Toro, for its well-paced and wearily cynical look at the American illegal drug trade and the federal government's futile and compromised war on same. Four plot lines, some of which connect, some of which don't, illustrate various aspects of the same criminalizing a public health issue as dysfunctional point. In the first, Michael Douglas's recently appointed U.S. drug czar gets some advice— like many exchanges in the film, trenchant and well enough acted but not terribly credible, from outgoing chump General James Brolin before realizing his own daughter, Erica Christensen, is putting together an extremely avant-garde audition for NBC's Parenthood with her portrayal of an honor student addict. <laughs> Elsewhere, DEA agents Luis Guzman and Don Cheadle do stake out bits while trying to keep reluctant rat Miguel Ferrer from getting got. Del Toro, a Mexican cop whose corruption on a scale from one to Trenton, New Jersey, is about a quattro, learns his new boss's impure motives. And when her husband gets arrested, a pregnant Catherine Zeta-Jones has to evolve from Carmela Soprano to Lady Macbeth to save the life she's built. And, and she achieves in part by literally screwing over Dennis Quaid, attorney at law. Have I missed anything? It's a tight movie. It's a tight summary. I think he did a credit. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Zach, anything to add there? No, I, I, I mean, I want to say that Topher Grace is in this, but just because I always want to say that Topher Grace is in something. So Yeah, this <laughs> begins the Topher Grace is also in this period of uh, Quaid and Full. God, God help us all. <laughs> I'd actually forgotten him. 
you, you guys, I don't, I can't tell if you're complaining, but as an avian boned American, it is always a joy to me to see Topher Grace, a man with my physique, make it all the way to the top. <laughs> oh, I love, I love Topher Grace. He, um, he almost single-handedly makes Spider-Man three where it's worth watching, which is, uh, as much as I love those movies, that's pretty impressive. No, I think he's like so much of the people in the movie, except for maybe Dennis Quaid. He is very, very well cast to the point where you almost don't need to hear him say lines. <laughs> yeah that's true the closing speech that he has where he's just sort of uh, hectoring michael douglas's character like this awful circumstance that you find your daughter in is something that you rot and a sociological condition it is exactly the kind of delivery that you would hope for a scrawny know-it-all on drugs sort of mansplaining the war on it to one of its architects and it works like it's exactly the level of like this is just right and just obnoxious enough they're coexisting perfectly. Like it, We actually have a clip. Do you want to drop that in here? I would be delighted. All Let's right. do it. I can't believe you brought my daughter to this place. Whoa. Why don't you just back the fuck up, man? To this place? What is that shit? Okay, right now, all over this great nation of ours, 100,000 white people from the suburbs are cruising around downtown, asking every black person they see, you got any drugs? You know where I can score some drugs? Think about the effect that that has on the psyche of a black person, on their possibilities. I, God, I guarantee you, you bring 100,000 black people into your neighborhood, into fucking Indian Hill, and they're asking every white person they see, you got any drugs? You know where I can score some drugs? Within a day, everyone would be selling. Your friends, their kids, here's why. It's an unbeatable market force, man. It's a 300% markup value. You can go out on the street and make $500 in two hours, come back and do whatever you want to do with the rest of your day. And I'm sorry, you're telling me that you're telling me that white people will still be going to law school? This is followed by <laughs> an absolute marrow freezing stare from Michael Douglas. And then Topher Grace's face just implodes. It's the famously visual medium of podcasting is not going to do it justice, but it's really good. Yeah, no, it's got that impetuous high school know-it-all thing of like he starts out in exactly the wrong tone, then winds up kind of segueing into hitting it just right and then clearly oversteps and you hear him know he's done it. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's what reading too much and being a 17-year-old dickhead is like. <laughs> yeah. it, was a, it was actually nice. Like one of the things I had watching this movie again, because I hadn't seen it in 20 years, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but watching it again was trying to figure out like the tone it was taking towards the drug war, which is obviously, is, as Sarah said, was very cynical. But it was like, is it cynical enough? And it was nice hearing that speech in that awkward moment where you're sort of like, I know this character is kind of a joke, but he's also right in a in a like i don't know i thought the tension of that was interesting and it was it played a lot better for me than the earlier scene with, where they were doing drugs where they were just so this is what people on drugs sound like that felt accurate ish but also very after school specially yeah i think this speech is a pretty good stand-in for how i feel about this movie generally having um i hadn't seen it since it came out i saw it in the theater and i was knocked out by it at the time but I think that this is a lot of um, this is good acting by charismatic, well cast people that almost makes you forget that this is not how people really talk. But the other problem is this is just a theory, but I think we've seen enough other projects with a similar cynical point of view on the war on drugs and the drug trade and and and. and. In the meantime, most of which may have been sort of made possible tonally by traffic, actually, that right. now mm -hmm. this feels a little bit 
speechy in spots like Michael Douglas and Amy Irving arguing over the hypocrisy of his taking this position when Amy Irving has known all along that their daughter is doing drugs. There's the cocktail party with uh, all these real life senators, some of them like lecturing Michael Douglas about what the job is going to be that just felt more didactic than I think it landed 20 years ago because traffic let other projects be more subtle about it. Mm -hmm. That's my theory, though. I don't know if you guys agree. Well, I do remember at the time, one of the big, I think I remember at the time that one of the criticisms of the movie was largely centered on the Michael Douglas plotline as being the weakest of the bunch because it was so didactic. Because even the fundamental structure of it is, wouldn't it be ironic if the drug czar had a daughter who was on drugs and they do it okay. The acting is pretty well. It, it's not great that one of the rock bottom moments is the white girl having sex with the black drug dealer, which feels like a weird signal. But um, I feel like at the, even at the time, that's like, I agree with you in general. I think that the, we've, we've gone past this movie and it was an important step in toward of the conversations we were having about the war on drugs. But I, th- I do remember at the time people kind of singling that, that one thread out if they were going to criticize the movie as being a little bit too much on the nose. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Sarah. Like the fact that this created a sort of template or maybe opened the door for this level of cynicism, there's a lot of stuff that's walked through it and it's kind of got the, it's kind of victim of the same thing. Like once somebody tells an iconic joke and everyone tells a joke uh, and then we've spent 20 years with that being a pop cultural default, when you go back and see the movie that originally had it, you're like, well, that's not that funny. Right. Well, it's not its fault. You know, it was groundbreaking for that level of humor at the time. And, and uh, for as much as the didacticism in some parts, yeah, is a little heavy handed and, and um, Michael Douglas being sort of like your, your expositional character, like he has to go ask questions and have things explained to him so you can understand how this works. Like for as much as that's a shortcoming, just to take it back to that Topher Grace speech, that manages to encapsulate, you know, all the, the details and the counterpoint really neatly while also evoking the general theme of the movie, which is, you know, you've got something that's so dumb, even this fuck up of a kid can understand it. And then he reaches a point where he acknowledges that he's not supposed to say that anymore. And, you know, this is the sort of the the same attitude you can apply to every other part of the war on drugs at every step. All these other characters know, well, this is kind of a fucking joke, but they also all know they're not supposed to say that. So you have that as much with uh, Miguel Ferrer to Don Cheadle and, and uh, Luis Guzman. Like, if you lock me up, nothing's going to happen. And they're like, yeah. yeah. Right. But the adult thing is we pretend that that's not true. Or I think especially sort of coming out of the Reagan era and the first Bush era, that it was still not something that you were supposed to, like, admit culturally this futility, even though you were seeing it in like every episode of Law and Order where they're trying to get someone further up the chain, we've mm-hmm. seen this scene before. But generally speaking, culturally, since we're supposed to be on the side of law enforcement, that's how it has to play out. Otherwise, some studio executive is going to be like, the FBI is not going to like it if we don't do this. So. It's sort of interesting to see that that was a like a turning point in how this was being portrayed. But it's like Citizen mm-hmm. Kane, which my mother forced us to watch. And we're like a focus ball, big whoop. And she's like, he invented those shitheads. Shut up. <laughs> right. 
I do want to echo one thing that Zach brought up. I've just as long as we're talking about bits that seem didactic or or took us out, um, the uh, the scene with Erica Christensen uh, shooting up with her black dealer who is also fucking her was yeah like a little bit much in terms of are you this is how you're going to have to make it scary. This is how you have to make the imagery scary. Uh, still, just like the the sort of eroticism of the needle immediately made me think of um, those old. Uh, pulp novels from the 50s of like the narco nympho uh, and it made uh-huh. me look up this uh this quote actually from one of the books is pitilessly explores the depravity of the true addict who takes lovers without number performs every heinous vice in order to embrace her one true love the needle and i was like yeah that's what you're doing <laughs> yeah i will say that the, the drug dealer was actually very handsome and like cut like the dude looked like it was like it wasn't in terms of it was a weird moment of like exploitative but also well he's a very attractive man so maybe she just wanted to enjoy that <laughs> yeah right but then it's also shot and lit to underline the blackness yeah, yeah. i mean i understand that this is supposed to be an inversion of this psa style trope i assume I'm going to give Soderbergh the benefit of that doubt, but this is, I think, how you drive the car that fits on the road, basically. So this is, you know, I think this is how we had to talk about it. Um, Certainly contemporary reviews were almost uniformly glowing. Ebert gave it four stars. I would not give it four out of four. I don't think I'm trying to remember what it was like to see it at the time and not mark off on it for being kind of a a pioneer or like a vanguard that then had its own job done better by things that came after it. But I'm not going to rate it that high either. Do we need to talk more about the movie qua movie or do we want to give our ratings? Yeah, I got. A, I had a few more things I wanted because I just wanted to to point out. I yeah, let's I don't do it. know if this is the first movie that had um, Mexico as yellow. Um, that's a thing that I largely <laughs> I, associate with Breaking Bad. I, I think and it Soder- was Soderbergh. Does well, oh, sorry. No, I think it was. I think you're right. Yeah, it's because Soderbergh did it to like differentiate between the the stories because Michael Douglas's stuff was mostly blue, but the Mexico is yellow thing is such a prevalent cliche now in television and movies that it was very striking to see it here when a movie within a movie that is otherwise comparatively sympathetic towards Mexico. I, I would say that Benicio del Toro story is the best of the bunch mm-hmm. uh, is the most affecting and feels like the most personal in a weird way. And it was very hard in my head not to immediately go, Oh, we're doing yellow now. Okay. This is yellow. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was exactly what I was thinking going into it was remembering I blamed traffic for the the CSI effect of like, if it's outdoor in the desert, it's yellow and grainy. Mm-hmm. If it's inside, it's blue and cool. And I thought it was going to be much more obnoxious than it actually was because I spent the next 10 years watching the after effects of that in, you know, prestige and network TV and just finding it like, you know, are you insulting my intelligence? I can figure out that we're in Mexico with the people speaking Spanish and the signs being in it. You don't have to make it yellow for me and you don't have to make it seem dustier and uglier. But within the actual movie itself, it seemed much more tasteful. I think I was just uh, feeling like the hangover of it, not the actual cocktail of the movie. Yeah, it really isn't necessary, especially since, you know, there's a Chiron that says Tijuana. <laughs> right. Like, oh, yeah, sure. Tijuana, Kansas. Oh, wait, it's yellow. <laughs> it's it's the original Tijuana. But I, I feel like this is where that started also. 
So that was another aspect of this movie that I was like, I roll. We've seen this a million times before, but like after this. Well, I guess the only other thing, and I could probably talk about this when we come to ratings too, but um, talking about it and thinking about it more, while I was watching it, I was a little bit frustrated with it, even though I was enjoying it. But the more I think about it, the more I appreciate there are lots of grace notes where it... It doesn't like even the storylines that didn't quite work for me. It feels like they find ways to make them human and kind of steer away from that PSA thing, even when they're kind of locked into it. Like again, with the Michael Douglas storyline, Caroline, the daughter, her relationship with the Topher Grace character. In another movie, that would clearly be setting up, oh, he's going to basically rape her when she's under the influence. That's that's the direction we're going in. You always have the fast-talking asshole who's always charming and providing you with, like, oh, I'm going to teach you how to freebase, and now I'm going to take advantage of you. And they have a moment where he makes out with her while she's uh, after, right after she freebases, but there's never any suggestion that he's taking advantage of her. It's more like they're just a couple of bored kids doing dumb shit. And I actually appreciated that. That felt... It felt a little more nuanced, even in a situ- even in an otherwise very obvious sort of narrative, I thought. Yeah, they, they managed to at least remind you that people start doing drugs because they're fun. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like the, the, she trusted him with drugs and with her body because they were having fun and they enjoyed each other's company. And like a lot of that ominousness to that scene is something that we're bringing in because we're expecting like like you said like you know he's going to violate her or he's going to pimp her out once you know his money runs dry or something and instead it's just like they like their company and drugs yeah (laughs) that's true and i i think that's a another aspect of this that this was something that at the time was different namely that the script was willing to just let that sit there and not have the immediate, but they were so wrong, like <laughs> foreshad, like true crime, lurid foreshadow with it, that it's just like drugs exist and are an addictive presence for a reason. It's not all terrible, unfortunately. So yeah, that was the thing that was new about this kind of narrative at the time. I think that we're just sort of used to that ambiguity now, and we may not give credit for it here. <laughs> Well, on that note, I, I'd like to rate the movie then. All right. I would like to give it, uh, I'd say like a nine. Okay. I think it's, I think it's it, you know, outstandingly made for what it's trying to do. And I think most of the negativity, the negativity I brought to it was stuff that washed away from watching it. Yeah, you know, I remember about 10 minutes in thinking like, oh, you know, this is procedural. This is going to be a grind. I've seen it before. But I know you hate the word propulsive. <laughs> I do. Thank you for respecting my my wishes. You know, for stuff that is as well trod, not only, you know, for when it was made, but also just sort of in the cultural consciousness, like Soderbergh doesn't let you linger too long in any one location where you're like, okay, I don't enjoy this one as much. You know, he keeps it moving. And there really isn't any point where I, I feel like a lot got cut out to get us this you know, cheap or, or scandalizing scene. All of it seems fairly integrated and 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 as we said before, like every bit is at least extremely well acted. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Zach, what's your number on this? One to 10. Um, I'm going to go a little lower, uh, higher than I was thinking about, but that's the nice thing about going second. I <laughs> rewatching this. I, I still feel like because I've seen enough Soderbergh at this point, I do enjoy Soderbergh's movies. They're reliably entertaining. And I do think this is probably as good a version of this as we were going to get, especially in that year. I just feel like there was too much of a polemic, too much of a, now we're going to sit down and explain how the drug trade works for me to engage with it as much as I wanted to. And some of the storylines 
I didn't connect with this much, so it wasn't when it was jumping around. I was very impressed. The the pacing is very good, and the way Soderbergh, who is a brilliant editor, obviously, cuts between the storylines and will show you snippets of things before anything actually is even happening, and you even understand what's going on. You just see them, you get introduced to them, so later on, when stuff actually starts happening, it really, really holds together really well. It just... Some of it I just was sort of, I did occasionally check the running time and realized that there was like an hour left and was a little bit disappointed. So I'm going to go with an eight. I'll go with an eight. Huh. Okay. I actually, for once, wrote this number down first before we recorded. And uh, I'm at an 8.5 <laughs> right in the middle. And uh, I'm going to stick on that. I don't want to grade it unfairly based on things that it can't be since it was made over 20 years ago. Uh, it's extremely well acted and uh, there it has a pace and a charisma that almost puts over a lot of the didacticism. You don't necessarily notice that it's happening until after the scene is over and you're like, wow, that was kind of a PowerPoint. There were just, you know, they were at a cocktail party in Georgetown. But for yeah. all of that, it does what it does really well, but it is a little didactic. And the reason that we're here, the storyline that Dennis Quaid is in is the least successful, in my opinion. So we're going to get to the Quaid qua Quaid rating in a second. But yeah, 8.5. It's definitely good and groundbreaking. It's just not quite as arresting, so to say, as I remember it being. Mm. <laughs> Man, you should, I, I feel like we just we achieved some sort of perfection that was like a golden mean that was elegant the way that worked out that's nice <laughs> that's a that's a first talk about a vanguard all right the quadosity rating the time has come this character is kind of all over the place for me like i feel like we don't see him that much and then every time we see him it's like a different iteration of a different idea of what an attorney is did either of you have that experience I said uh, way back, way back, all long ago at the start of the podcast, but I said that every actor in this movie was really well cast to me, with the possible exception <laughs> of Quaid, not because he's bad exactly, but it never really felt like, it felt like having a performer that was as noticeable as him under, kind of undercut the whole point of that character. Like, it felt very much, like you said, like it wasn't really a consistent character type. I kept try waiting for the moment where I'd be like, oh, that's why Dennis Quaid is playing this guy. And that's why his name's on the poster. It's This is why he's important. And it's instead, he just sort of lurked around the edges. He did, his, did the grin and was kind of smarmy in places. And then in the end, he gets killed. And that's kind of it. It felt, of all the storylines, it felt like the most, I, I did wonder if we they legitimately just cut a scene or two out because it just felt like he just never quite came into view in the way that most of the rest of the cast did. Yeah, I agree. And also, you already cast Boone, so what do you need Dennis Quaid for exactly, since he's not going to be quading that much? I don't know. Jeb, what did you think of that? See, I thought this was actually, I thought this was good casting. Soderbergh knows what Dennis Quaid can do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there isn't a lot that this character gets to do in terms of time, and I think you know, he went to an actor who is going to convey what you need out of this kind of character, which is, you know, a guy who's in a, you know, a pleasure and vice business who is a little bit too apt to indulge his own. And I don't know as if 
the characterization of him as an attorney is that inconsistent since he seems to be sort of like a sleazier, like Robert Kardashian type. Right. Somebody who hangs on, you're not really sure what he does. It's probably a little bit illegal, you know, loose morals. Is he a friend? Is he not? And that was just enough... Uh, I think vagueness that the the Quaid smirk conveyed it and and let you get through it. Now, what arc he has is not really fleshed out the way you would like because of the runtime of the movie. And I, I agree, like with what Zach said, I feel like maybe there was one or two transitional bits that got omitted. Mm. But I think Quaid does enough of the lifting that it works. It's not his best work with um, that kind of vibe or the material, and there isn't enough of him, but. This is what Quaid's for. This is why you get him. And this is where he belongs, I think. Well, I have a couple clips. The first clip is when he is explaining to Catherine Zeta-Jones or trying to explain like what her husband actually does. I think that her character's evolution is more problematic in terms of believability than Quaid's sort of remoraing along nearby. But here he is sort of doing that, uh, putting a finger on his lips, don't talk because there's a bug thing. Carl is a very important member of this community. And when we get through suing the police and the district attorney and the DEA, they're gonna be renaming the public parks after your husband. Carl is very, very good at his business. I mean, there's a lot in the writing of this scene that does not work, but Dennis Quaid here works because I buy him as that, like, mob fixer type attorney. And then he has to turn it up to, I can get it in with the wife and move in, like move in on the territory, which I'm not, again, Mm -hmm. not totally sure I buy that from a writing standpoint, but I thought it was effectively underplayed in the writing and pretty well played by Quaid for Quaidiness. Like, I think this is another place where this is why you cast him. Here's another clip. I remember the first time that I saw you. Little Helen Watts from the wrong side of somewhere. Somehow I knew even then that your survival skills were pretty well honed. How do you think so, Arnie? I just keep picturing a debt-ridden 30-year-old mother of two whose ex-husband is being compared to Pablo Escobar. I don't know anyone who wants to be with someone like that. Do you? I felt that was good setup, and... Quaid is the guy that you want in that scene. Now, where we end up, mm-hmm. and this will be in the visual aids, but he's wearing like an Aloha shirt and like white socks and brown loafers. Like, it's very strange. Like, who's this guy? Like, who's this sort of Busey in speed dressing guy? Like, I don't I don't understand this person. <laughs> so I think you guys are right that something got left on the cutting room floor. Well, it's very odd. The uh, the last scene of this of that storyline has um, Catherine Zeta Jones's husband, who also turns up as a drug dealer in Breaking Bad, just to 
put that on mm-hmm. the record. He calls Arnie, calls Dennis Quaid, and he just lays out the entire plot. Yeah. Oh, you were going to seduce my wife, and you were going to take over my spot. And it just sort of feels like, oh, that's what was going on. Okay, I would have liked to see more of that, because it they had to convey so much in terms of her suddenly becoming this really ruthless businesswoman, and then disappearing at the end it it just felt like a storyline that i don't know if it, it works better in the uh the miniseries i kept thinking that the entire time but as it is it just sort of feels like we got the highlight moments of it like the the moment where she goes to talk to the head of the drug cartel that in mexico and she suddenly has this magic doll that they can use that we have no idea how she was introduced to this technology i don't think and whereas in the other ones it was easy enough to make those connections in this one it required too many leaps and i feel like the Quaid character, I, I do agree with you both. Now that the more I think about it, he does bring that sort of charming but kind of smarmy, like, you know, this guy isn't completely on the up and up, but you're charmed by him anyways, vibe to it that's really important. But I feel like that character probably got the most short shrifted of that abbreviated running time. Well, and it's like they knew that. So they're like, all right, Stephen Bauer, we know you already have your SAG card, but you're going to make some subtext text for us because we think test (laughs) audiences are lost. Like, I was a little happier just assuming that that's what happened and never getting it confirmed. But that whole babe in the country club woods has to go all Laura Linney at the end of Mystic River. Like, what? (laughs) That didn't work for me. And this having it confirmed is also like this is a little more venal than a really quaidy quaid character is in my view but here we are so it's a tough number yeah mm. this is a tough one to rate because it's one of those where the axes are not really close like how much quaid is there how good is this quaid how quaidy is this quaid so i could keep stalling but i guess i'll just go first um Relative proportional volume of Quaid is real low. He's good given how underwritten it is, and he was definitely cast for that sleazy vulpine quality, but he's not able to bring it as consistently as you'd hope. So I'm going to come in at a four. I was going to say about a six, just on the strength of the role works because it's Dennis Quaid doing it. I mean, I think if you plunked anybody else in there, that vulpinity takes a little bit longer to germinate, Mm -hmm. but the smile from him, you're like, I know what's up. I know what's going on. I mean, not that I want to put James Woods in anything really, but I think maybe for a character that ends up being this calculatedly gross. Looks like more of a shark. It's just a lot harder to think of Catherine Zeta-Jones getting to yes with James Woods, like (laughs) getting herself to that point. (laughs) So, well, there's also that. Um, I don't disagree. It just... My math brought it to a, a four. Zach, how are you feeling about the quaintiness of this? Okay. If you pick a five, Zach, so help me God. Oh, no, go no. He's not, he's not uh, joking. I, I was going to go five, you. but I had my reasons. I had my reasons. They were <laughs> um, No, I, I feel like you all make it's It's more like, I think I actually kind of do want to go with a five because in a way it's sort of like what you would get if you just said, we're going to plug Dennis Quaid into a role. And it's not even like Dennis Quaid showed up. You just had the program that right. does the Dennis Quaid thing shows up <laughs> for those couple of scenes. Animatronic and then leaves. Quaid. So there's no chance for him to actually rise above what he's given or really sink below it, but he does deliver exactly what you need from that Dennis Quaid part. So I, I feel comfortable with a five. You can come at me, but I, I feel comfortable <laughs> with a five. Damn it, that's perfectly reasonable. I, yes, it is. <laughs> I love a Hall of Presidents <laughs> reference, especially, especially on this podcast. 
truly. Zach, thank you so much for uh, rating and reviewing Traffic and Dennis Quaid for us. We hope that you will come back and do it again sometime in perhaps a, a slightly shorter film. Uh, <laughs> I'd absolutely love to. Where else can listeners find you and your works and days? Uh, well, I uh, review things. Generally, my reviews of TV shows appear on the AV Club. I think that's actually... I have nothing going on right now, but you can see reviews of the recent Wheel of Time series and some Star Trek Discovery episodes up there. I have a Patreon, if you search Patreon for Zach Hanlon. Unfortunately, right now, it is only for me writing about Voyager, which has a very narrow audience. But if you are in that audience, feel free to hop aboard. Um, and I am also co-author of Monsters of the Week, The Complete Critical Compendium, The X-Files, which uh, Emily Vanderwerf from Vox and I reviewed every episode of The X-Files. It's a very lovely, thick book you can use to beat people over the head with and occasionally read. The art is excellent. And some of the sentences are also fine. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Next time on Quaid in Full, Dinner with Friends. In the meantime, no need to seek an audience with Ray Curtis to check out our show notes. They're right there in your podcast player. Just scroll down. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod and get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and then sit down and write two letters, reviewing Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Was he charged with Ernie? I don't know, but under no circumstances am I going to talk about it here, okay?